All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Coffee with Connections. We've got a special guest today, Dr. Daniel Crosby, who is a psychologist and behavioral finance expert. Good morning. How are you? I'm awesome. Thanks for having me. Now, you're certainly welcome to be here. Now, tell me, so I recently just read The Laws of Wealth and uh, a Zoom screen there. First of all, phenomenal book. I mean, I I thought it was one of the most... um, I don't know. I've never quite read an investing book like it. I, I would say it really felt like it was a behind the scenes point of view of what makes humans um, tick when it comes to investing um, and wealth and, and the stock market and, and security selection and whatnot. Um, but how my question is, how long like, all the immense examples and, and research and whatnot you, you cited in there, how long did that take you to compile and then formulate your own thoughts around it? So it's, it's interesting. So I'll, I'll digress a bit here. So there's this famous story about Picasso sitting in a park and this woman comes up and she's like, Hey, I'm a huge fan. Draw a picture for me. And he draws a picture of her. It takes like five minutes. And then, you know, she says, what do I owe you? And he says, you know, whatever, a thousand bucks or whatever, Mm -hmm. some big number. And she says, thousand bucks. Like it took you five minutes. And he says, no, ma'am, it took me my whole life. (laughs) So in, in one respect, it took me about three or four months to write the laws of wealth, but the um, that's like after it was fully outlined and, you know, sort of the ideas were fully fleshed out in my head. It took me three or four months to like put it down on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, years, it, it took me years right. to sort of figure this out. And, you know, I wrote a book after that called The Behavioral Investor and I'm excited to write my next book, but I'm Mm -hmm. still compiling, you know, all these years later, I'm still Mm -hmm. compiling, you know, notes for my next book. So three or four months to write a lifetime to think of. (laughs) Uh, That makes perfect sense. Um, Well, and we'll dive back into some of the details because I mean, as a financial advisor, I found the laws of wealth just um, immensely beneficial for my own sake. But then if you were just a novice investor, I think it's an incredible book to read um, to inform yourself and we'll jump back into it. But I want to ask you, when you... Because your position, and I would say, and you would maybe, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. It's almost like there are very few people, I think, that in your position, because you, in one hat, you're a, a clinical psychologist, correct? If, and correct me if I'm wrong, that terminology, but then also an, an advisor and also a behavioral finance expert. Now, when you grew up and you dreamed of a career, was one of those or both of them kind of your goal? Or was, did it, how did you evolve, I guess, from, from in being this dynamic um, type of, of work and employment and passion? Yeah, I wanted to be the catcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, but uh, Yadier Molina has been holding that job down admirably for for over a decade now, mm-hmm. uh, and I can't really hit a curveball. So um, <laughs> no, I I wanted to be a baseball player when I grew up. But yeah. my dad, uh, my dad is a uh, a money manager. My dad is a okay. financial advisor, okay. and so I I grew up in a home where you know. M- I think unlike most American homes, we talked about investing around the dinner table. You know, we right. talked about saving and I joke, it's, it's not a joke, but um, you know, debt was a four letter word in my house. I grew up in a conservative uh, religious household and, mm-hmm. you know, we couldn't swear. And we also, we, we literally were not allowed to say the word debt because my dad hated it so much. And um, so I, I had that foundation when I went to school um, I went on a, I went on a mission for my church. So I was gone. I lived in Southeast Asia for two years and was, okay. you know, teaching English and building schools and all this. And then I went, when I came back, I had, I think, uh, 
you know, an interest in culture, having lived abroad for two years, I had an, an interest in doing good in the world. And I thought that that psychology, you know, being a clinical psychologist would, would be the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. um, turns out it's very hard work. I was, I was really taking work home with me. I was very stressed out by that yeah. work and it was just heavy. Like it's, it's important work. I, I love the people who do that work, but it was very heavy for me. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to apply you know, thinking deeply about how, why people act the way they do with, with something non-clinical and long story short, sort of that initial seed had taken hold at, at that point. And, and I found my way into this industry. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think, you know, the, the common or a big takeaway I got is that, you know, you, so much of us as a financial advisor, we know that people get weird when you're talking about money, right? It's one of those mm -hmm. things where it's like a lot of ego and pride is kind of wrapped up into about money. So when you, and trying to talk to people about money, um, a lot of advisors, I don't think maybe appreciate enough of how it's not necessarily that they're not trying to work with you from like a business perspective. It's just a deeply personal thing that a lot of people carry a lot of different like baggage and, and feelings from it um, and wrapped up into their thought process. So I, I just, I think it's just fascinating that you, you take that or through your discipline of the psychology, uh, psychology aspect, you, you kind of can understand a little bit where more people are coming from in that regard. Yeah, it's fascinating. One of the things I looked at for the behavioral investor, my, my newer book is that I, I looked at uh, fMRI studies. So like brain, brain scan studies mm -hmm. of folks and, and they, you know, put, put people on this brain scan technology and then they would show them different pictures, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they would show them, you know, like suggestive pictures, you know, for like activate lust. And they would show them pictures of death and, you know, like dead birds and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they would show them pictures of money and like other things that had sort of a strong emotional valence to them. Money, money had the strongest emotional valence more than wow. sex, more than death, more than religion, like all these things that we think of as being sort of hot, hot button items nothing gets us as sort of cranked up as, mm -hmm. as money does. And, and because of that, you know, we all grew up in different households, right? We all grew up with different sort of biases and quirks around money. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's a really tricky subject and a touchy subject that, that doesn't have to be as touchy as it is, I think, candidly. Right. And, and then another concept you speak about is people are drawn because it's such an important thing to us. And it does elicit that emotional reaction. A lot of the times when people just even hear the word or see it or think about it, um, you know, we're drawn to the sensationalism of the financial press. You know, that's something you spoke about, like whether that's CNBC or even just social media and just maybe following a very like bold and brash analyst that has a prediction or they're saying something about the economy, um, and, you know, just to read some of the quotes is that those who have knowledge don't predict and those who predict don't have knowledge. Another another nice quote I liked was it's frightening to think about um, or you, you might not know everything, but more frightening by and large, the world is run by people who think they know what's going on. So my question is that in a world where it feels like all of this information is coming at us, the news, social media, we can get it anywhere. How would you say or how do you personally prevent yourself from, I guess, being sucked into it or letting that like get wrapped up into it or for just the average person, is there like a, okay, look, I'm going to expose myself maybe on a limited basis to this type of stuff and not let that filter in my decision-making process. Yeah. So I think one of my disadvantages and, and our disadvantages, yours and mine for, for, for that matter 
is that I am required to have an opinion, right? Like I'm going to be on podcasts or do media appearances or whatever. And people are going to ask me about, you know, whatever the investing fad du jour is and, and what I think about XYZ political thing. And it's actually to my detriment as an investor. Right. Uh, the best thing an investor can do is set aside money every month, uh, invest in risk assets, work with a professional and like go do stuff that matters more. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, go play with their mm-hmm. grandkids, watch baseball. Like, I mean, a, a million right. things, right? Like, it just doesn't matter. Like there's actually an inverse relationship. I, you know, talked about this in one of my books, there's an inverse relationship between how closely people monitor the financial news and how well they do. There's an inverse, you know, there's an inverse relationship uh, between how often people check their accounts and how well they do. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, it's one of these things it's designed to be sensational. It's Mm -hmm. designed to, to worry you. Uh, and it actively loses you money. So like, why would you bother? So I, um, when I get my financial statements, when I get my quarterly financial statements, I rip them up like on Mm -hmm. purpose. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't look because there's nothing, whether it's good or bad, there's nothing in there that I need to act on. I'm, you know, I'm young, youngish. I have many years left um, to invest and I just, it doesn't matter. So I try and ignore it to the extent possible. I think another line that comes up to me, it's, you know, when financial advisors, I think are sometimes guilty of like getting on their their pedestal and preaching, like don't make emotional decisions, don't make emotional decisions. And then a lot of them, you'd say, okay, well then what is your process for evaluating risk and securities and whatnot? Um, I I think it was important that you pointed out that it's not that you, it's not that we as financial advisors or individual investors are just suppressing all emotions. It's just recognizing it and having a system that maybe negates it or combats it or checks it and somehow puts you in type of a way where you're not making rash, just quick decisions. But it's, I think it's, I think it's just miscommunicated often where it's like, don't like ignore your emotions, suppress your emotions. Like that's not what it is. I think it's just, it's more important to say, okay, yeah, you're going to have emotion. Here's the blueprint to navigate in light of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because when you look at the research, it shows that basically if, if we didn't feel emotion, we wouldn't be able to make any decisions. Right. So people who have the emotional, you know, lesions on the emotional sort of decision makers, uh, making centers of their brain, they actually can't pick which ice cream flavor they want. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they can't pick which shirt color they, they want because even low stakes decisions have a strong emotional valence to them that I think we are largely unaware of. And so uh, emotion is going to be there. Mm-hmm. But what, what you can do, though, is work with your advisor to pre-commit to not make decisions in, in a place of heightened emotion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like one of a, one, the, the chapters in the laws of wealth are really designed. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't ever outline this explicitly in the book. But the reason I wrote that book, that's really a set of like commandments, if you will, mm-hmm. that should be um, sort of a deal between a financial advisor and, and her clients. Mm-hmm. You know, it's to say, and one of the chapters is, you know, if you're excited, it's probably a bad idea. And that's true. And it's, it's also true if you're fearful, it's probably a bad idea. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can avoid, you can avoid emotion, but you can keep yourself from making um decisions at a point of an emotional extreme, uh, the addiction, the addiction literature, like the 12 step, uh, programs, they have an acronym called halt. 
So it stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Okay. And I say, you know, you should never make a decision when you're in, you know, you should halt when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And the same thing is true of financial decision-making. Mm-hmm. If you find yourself very cranked up about an idea or very fearful about an idea, it's probably not, not great. Wow. I mean, I like that a lot. So those halt, halt, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Now, and talk to me about, um, you know, your thoughts where it's like, if you, a financial advisor, I love the, I love the questions that you would say, like, this is what to ask your financial advisor. And one of the things in particular was if it feels like their response to their like investment approach is long-winded rambling and, and trying to be overly nuanced, then statistically, or I don't know if it's statistically, but that is more likely to be like reflection of like an untrue statement or maybe just over the top or hot air that you should be able to boil to like their real knowledge is right. It's, understanding something complex, but then being able to portray it simply and communicate it simply. Um, how do you find, or most advisors, because a lot of the financial advisors that I'm connected with um, are, are thinking about this, is there uh, a piece of advice you would say to advisors? Is it not to boil down your services into like the, the cliche elevator pitch, but but is there, like when you speak with advisors, what is it that you you often like try to have them communicate, I guess, about their their process, hopefully if they have one, but how do, how do you frame that, I guess, when you're talking out with the world? Yeah, so, I mean, you make, you make a great point there, you know, and I say, basically, this, this was my wife's favorite part of the book, right? Mm-hmm. So my wife doesn't work in finance and she read the book, I think, to just kind of be nice to me. <laughs> and so I said, you know, I said, look, what, what is the favorite part? You know, what was your favorite part? And she was like, oh, the checklist for choosing a good advisor. And I'm like, really? Like, you know, like there's all this, you know, there's all this complexity and there's all this good stuff, if I do say yeah. so in the book. And, <laughs> and you know, I'm like, that that little 10 part checklist was your favorite. And she's like, look, if you got hit by a bus, like, you know, and and I had to like figure out who to have manage our money, like that was a you know reassuring right. to me. And so the thought there is a a, a, a couple fold, right? So the first of all, if you ask an advisor, like, tell me about your process for managing money, right? Mm -hmm. You're you're measuring a couple of things. First of all, you're measuring their ability to educate, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, they're going to teach you because part of their role is to educate you about how capital markets work and what you should be doing. So that's one thing you're measuring. The other thing you're measuring is if they have a process at all, right? (laughs) Because, because, you know, candidly, some, some folks don't. And there's lots of ways to skin that cat. Like, you know, value investing has worked, like momentum investing can work, like active mm-hmm. can work, passive can work. Lots mm-hmm. of things can work, but you need to have a philosophy and it needs to, to be sort of undergird by, by something that folks can believe in. So, so basically what you're doing is, you know, seeing if they're good educators, seeing if they've thought it through and then seeing, you know, allowing you to kind of check it, um, in, in markets, complexity tends to be the enemy of good returns. Like, you know, Morningstar did a, um, a sort of an attribution, a return attribution study a few years back. And the best predictor of, of equity fund returns was price. You know, it's like, so, I mean, if, if your advisor says, hey, look, I take your money, I try and not ding you on fees and spread it around, like, that's, that's pretty good. Like, I mean, that's like a pretty, you know, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good approach. So you're measuring a couple of things when you ask that one question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, not to get into the weeds, but some of the financial advisors would appreciate this. And it's, um, I think it's, 
you you outlined a lot of advisors or individual investors fall camp to just kind of this active versus passive um, like camp and almost just like picking a side and then kind of defending it like it's like oh like I'm passive like it's of course like are you kidding it, it's passive investing that's what that's what we do and then the, on the active side it's like oh well no because I'm passive you're just buying an index um, you know I, we kind of pride ourselves on the active management side of it and I love what you pointed out it was very shocking in your level of analysis that the S&P 500 doesn't actually seem that passive when you consider how different companies are placed into it, you know, essentially by a committee that that's, it's really unclear the, the metrics in which they do it. Um, and they're actively picking in they've, I don't remember the exact details, but over time they've shown to maybe pull in just like not hot companies, but companies that have an interest or are actually oversold to a degree and then you end up getting an oversold group of companies where that's like the worst time to buy it because they've become large and overpriced i just i, I thought that that um aspect and that analysis was fascinating that i don't think a lot of people um dig that deep enough to truly understand passive versus active well my goal with with writing those portions of the book was to just make everyone angry like so no matter <laughs> like no matter if you're you know the most the most hardcore active enthusiast the things that i'm suggesting in the book are going to be a little more more measured than than mm -hmm. probably you think and if you're a hardcore uh, passive enthusiast you know the things i'm suggesting are heretical because i'm suggesting that active management can add some value so yeah you know one of the things is that the S&P 500 is is not like you know, mined from the earth in its perfect form. Like it's put together, right. like, you know, it's put together by a, a group of people with, with, uh, you know, hangups and foibles, just like the two of us mm -hmm. and they do dumb stuff. And like, mm -hmm. one of the things that they do is that they have tended to capitulate to public demand for, for hot stocks that have, that are, you know, on average overpriced and, and, and kind of, uh, frothy, so right. they did this. They did this in, with the dot com bubble, bubble. They they broke their own rules against. They broke their own rules against adding unprofitable companies to add. You know some of those tech names that got creamed. Um, mm -hmm. That you know they. I'm not saying it's good or bad compliance. Don't yell at me. But you know they they uh, they recently added Tesla, which was you know I right. mean is uh, Tesla trades for um, you know. Tesla trades for more than its next 12 nearest competitors, mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that they make, uh, you know, 121 times fewer cars. Right. So like, you know, will Tesla continue to go to the moon? Will they grow into that valuation? Maybe like, I don't know, but like right. you, you'd be hard, you'd be hard pressed to argue that today Tesla isn't a little expensive, you know, by, by traditional metrics, but you know, they put it in because people love it. Right, they like trading up, and it's it's sexy headline. Um, yeah, and just you know, like we're both uh, the uber cautious, the SEC and Finra. We're not making investment uh, recommendations, of course. Here, um, mm -hmm. please consult a professional for security selection and financial planning. Um, let me get switch gears. Let me get your thoughts on how closely do you follow, or did you follow this whole um, the GameStop situation, where you know you essentially had like an underground group of folks on the internet, Reddit specifically, um, run up a stock that they felt like was, you know, being pushed, you know, being shorted by the quote unquote hedge fund and almost representative of like old money, institutional money, you know, a different class of, of investments. And then you had this, you know, crazy market phenomena where, you know, the price was driven way up. And I think now I don't follow it as closely. Do you, from a behavioral 
standpoint, because the, the market side of it, and a lot of people were angry that, you know, certain trading platforms limited trading. It's like, okay, well, who were they trying to kind of help more in that favor by limiting trading? That's a whole nother, you know, discussion that gets into um, some in the weeds, SEC type stuff. But from a behavioral aspect, do you think, well, I'm going to just stop there. Like, where are your thoughts on that in general? And why do you think, I guess, that occurred from a human level? Yeah, so I, I followed it very closely. I barely slept a wink that that like week, <laughs> the week when it was most insane. You know, it was like my Super Bowl. I mean, I was just right. up following it. I was up like into the wee hours of the morning reading Reddit forums and stuff. Um, so I, I followed it super closely. And, uh, you know, I think there's a couple of things that contribute. You know, first of all, some of this stuff is just old behavior, right? There have been investment clubs and like, you know, investment groups for as long as there's been investments. So mm -hmm. in some respects, the, the internet is facilitating things, but like, you know, there've been Yahoo, you know, Yahoo investment forums for whatever, 20 something years. And you've never seen anything quite like that. I think it was exacerbated by a couple of things. I think it was exacerbated by the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got a bunch of people stuck at home whose lives have been totally de-risked, right? They're looking, you know, they wear a mask everywhere they go. They can't be with their friends. They're bored. They're lonely, mm -hmm. right? And so they're looking, um, their lives have been de-risked and they're looking to take risks somewhere. Mm -hmm. We also know that people are super lonely, right? Like the isolation from the pandemic has been one of the hardest things about it from sort of a psychological perspective. We're also isolated. And the GameStop thing gave... Uh, the sense of acting as a collective. Like if mm. you looked at all the memes and stuff around it, it was like a union. Right, uh, like to the moon. Line. Like, yeah, yeah like, like, yeah, but it was like a union like picket Morgan. line or something. <laughs> like, no, like no one break, you know, no one break ranks, right. like, you know, lock arms and here we go. And then the last two things, it, it was a message that was so appealing because it promised two things. It promised you great wealth, right? Or that was, you know, the, the, right on the, the subtext of it, right? So you're promised great wealth while doing good in the world. Like you're, you're sticking it to the man right. and you're going to get rich doing it. And so there was this real sort of Robin Hood, no pun intended vibe to the, you know, to the whole thing. And so it was a super compelling narrative that found its sweet spot at a time when people were bored and lonely and isolated and looking to take risk because every other risk had been taken off the table. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was fascinating on a lot of different levels. Um, you know, I, it's hard to say whether something like that will happen again. It did feel like it was a moment in time where a lot of these macro conditions kind of like were just aligned in the right moment for something like that to almost come out of uh, from, you know, from society. Um, how closely do you, do you follow um, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and, and the impact of that on like traditional capital markets? I mean, you're slowly starting to see more institutional um, firms, you know, come into the space, kind of embrace it. I think Jamie Dimon, like two years ago, like very demissively said it was nothing that he would ever consider doing. And then, you know, they played the clip to him. I saw it recently on you know, a couple of months ago on in an interview, like, Hey, now what do you think about it? Um, you're seeing companies put holdings in it. Like, how closely do you follow cryptocurrency? And do you feel like in the next couple of years, we'll see that more in ETF models and normal asset allocation? Yeah. So um, again, without, without giving advice, I'll say a couple of things. So first of all, uh, Canada has approved a, a Bitcoin ETF and the US, believe it or not, tends to lag Canada from sort of a financial innovation 
um, regulatory standpoint by about six months. And so upwards of 10 uh, asset managers have now filed Bitcoin ETF you know, applications. I think they're all going to get approved. I think it won't be long. I think in, you know, I think in less than a year, there will probably be a lot of Bitcoin ETFs to choose from. And I think that they'll, um, you know, I think that that they'll be popular. You know, the thing uh, I wrote in the behavioral investor about how psychology is the thing that underpins um, every part of the financial system, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the little green pieces of paper that we <clears throat> spend our lives working for are valuable because we all agree that they're valuable. Like right. they're not in, there's nothing intrinsic to a dollar bill that makes it valuable except for our shared trust. Uh, and so in that same respect, um, the more people believe in Bitcoin, the the more legit it gets, there's, there's nothing that underlies it intrinsically that makes mm-hmm. it value besides the the trust of the people who are spending it. Now that sounds like a diss. It's really not. I mean, you could say the same thing about just money. And so I think, you know, there's, there's, there's something that Nassim Taleb has talked about a lot called the Lindy effect, which is the longer something's around, the longer it's likely to be around. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, a book like the, the Iliad or the Odyssey, it's been around forever. It's likely to be around, you know, it's been around for hundreds of years. It's likely to be around a hundred years from now. And the, the truth about Bitcoin is the longer it can stick around, the mm-hmm. longer it's likely to stick around. Cause I think it's already outperformed. Uh, you know, I think it's already exceeded the expectations of what some people thought. I think the biggest risk with Bitcoin is regulatory risk. I right. think there could, I think the U S government could come in, and try and make some make some noise uh, about Bitcoin, right? And um, a lot of the biggest mining operations in the world, uh, the Bitcoin mining operations, are in China. Right. So I think I think that there's some political risk there, but I also think that that psychology is central to understanding every facet of, of Bitcoin. Yeah, and that's and I actually just saw is Peter Thiel, the the you know co- one of the co-founders of. Um, PayPal and uh, Palantir and whatnot actually just was kind of expressing that view that because of so much of the mining of it is in China, at what point do we consider it, you know, like a, a geopolitical risk and basically financial warfare type tool? Um, not that maybe it was designed for that, but just how it's it quickly kind of become positioned. I, I always thought I was a believer at least a couple of years ago that it was just it would be very tough for a government to to fully embrace something that like essentially cuts them out of the process. Like if I can pay you, if I can pay someone clear across the world and we can exchange economic value and there's no way for a middleman to tax me, regulate it and control it. Governments, you know, in nutshells don't like that. Right. Um, it sub- subverts a lot of their the power of, of taxes and, and purchasing and whatnot and for their own for their own currency. Um, I don't know. It's a fascinating space. And it's um, like I said, certainly it's not in no investment advice or whatnot. Um, but it's, uh, it's fascinating. I do think it'll continue to disrupt, uh, potentially disrupt the entire financial services as banking and whatnot for the t- for time to come. Yeah. You know, the thing, the thing about it is, um, I think some of the biggest promise for Bitcoin is for people in places with crazy inflation or people who live, yeah, who live in countries with, with like crazy inflation or people who live in countries, uh, without, uh, stable economies or people who live in sort of totalitarian regimes. I mean, there's a lot of places where we could be extremely wealthy 
and you know some some jackbooted gentlemen are going to kick down your door and take your money and give right. it to the government. So I think um, I think for people who live in developing countries with with developing economies, Bitcoin has an enormous amount of promise. But you know, in a place like the West or in a place like the U.S., which has a developed economy, Uncle Sam is going to be very angry about being right. cut out of the process, like you said. So you know, great risk, great promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and even just broadly, the cryptocurrency in general, right? Ethereum and all the different altcoins, like like the power of, like you said, of empowering folks that maybe are in a situation where they're not extremely reliant on their, their native currency or or source of wealth generation. If they can they can make money and they have skills and they can use the internet to create wealth for themselves, it's going to be hard to tell them not to do that. And it's going to be hard to stop them um, from doing it. Um, let me let me ask you one last question, because um, we, you know, at Centurion, um, we work with entrepreneurs, executives, and newly independent or divorced women um, or widows or whatnot. Um, that's kind of our three uh, lanes of working with financial planning. Um, but specifically to, to female versus male, have you had any profound research on the way male versus females identify risk or tend to invest their money? Um, ha- have you ever looked into that, I guess, extensively? Yeah, I have actually. So, you know, let me, let me speak to it from the behavioral standpoint uh, first, like shout out to the women because they do everything better. Like, you know, women, um, women are better investors than men uh, as, as professionals, uh, as retail, like sort of mom and pop investors, women are better than men. Professional women investors are, are on average better than men. Um, women are less likely to go to cash. They're less likely to emotionally trade. They're more likely to diversify. Like, I mean, they just, they do everything better. Like when Mm -hmm. you look at, you know, sort of uh, behavior around that. Um, I think it's a common misconception that women and men have dramatically different risk tolerance preferences. That's not the case in, in the research. But one of the things that we do see is that women and men have a confidence gap. So men men are worse at managing money, but more confident about their ability to manage money. Women have better skills, but less confidence. But what's interesting is younger women. So like, you know, women in their early twenties say have the same level of, um, uh, of confidence now as, as men, their same age. So that, that confidence gap with women is, is shrinking. I think as society you know, comes around uh, to, to, you know, better ways of thinking. And as, as we start to socialize women uh, as, as equals and not the way that they've been socialized historically, which has sort of disenfranchised them mm-hmm. from the process. So um, yeah, risk tolerance is about the same. Women's investing chops tend to be better. Uh, and I think that you're seeing the, the confidence gap shrinking. So uh, something to look out for. Yeah, well, I mean, in one of my, you know, guiding missions and, and goals of this position um, as a director of communications and as an advisor, somewhat of a unique position that we feel um, excited about because I'm, we're trying to spread financial literacy. And even though you did mention that you can't have too much information sometimes within in investments and security selection, um, it is important, I guess, to educate yourself and become financially literate. Um, not That doesn't mean, oh, I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be powerful. I don't, no, it just means become understanding finances that can best suit you for whatever your financial goals are. That doesn't mean be a millionaire, be a billionaire. Um, being financial literate can help you live a, a more 
option, more have options in your life, flexibility, um, you know, maybe tend to help you family members or health outcomes or whatnot. Um, so something we're passionate about is, you know, spreading financial literacy. Um, and it's something that you're, you're clearly doing with your work. So I certainly appreciate you, um, coming on. Uh, all of your work is amazing. I've been a follower for a while. I'll make sure to link everything in the comment section when I post this out of all your work. Um, but thank you, uh, Dr. Crosby, for coming on today. And I uh, appreciate you and hopefully have a great rest of your year. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on.